thanks. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm back. <laughs> For all of those people who said, you talk too fast, I've come back to bother you again a few weeks later. Um, but it has been, it's been great to be able to, um, I guess, help out in some ways with Graham coming. And a number of people have said, oh, it's so kind of you. I said, you don't understand. I get a lion when I get to preach at Hastings because our first meeting starts at nine. So I get a lion when I come over here, at least... I would if I didn't have two young children. And so it's a nicer day for me. And nobody at our, in Eastbourne has the panache presenting notices of Santino. I mean, nobody in our church says, we're going to watch a movie. I love it. Nobody in our church announces that there's more than one Russia in the notices. And, and what's odd is that all of you just nodded along. You went, yeah, we're going to be praying into the Russias. And you went, yes, 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 oh, those Russias. I thought, how many Russias are there now? It's just wonderful. Several. Matt Stan's just chipping in. And so, to be honest, I'd come here because it gives me more time in bed. I'd come here because of Sam's notices. Um, but today, today, I'm going to come here and just and speak from, from Ephesians chapter 2, if that's okay. So, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Ephesians and chapter 2, you'll recognise, I hope, the phrases at the beginning, because at the start of the meeting, I don't think Sam knew I was speaking on this text, but he read them out to launch us into worship. And they're just such rich theology that I wanted to read from them today and just unpack it. And so we can work together through understanding. It's very foundational. It's very basic, if you like. Um, it's nothing I'm, I hope that people will never have heard before if you've been in church for some time. But I want to serve you by just helping us see the way Paul understands the gospel, the, the fact that you are saved by grace, not by works. What does that mean? And why might we misunderstand it? And how could we be served in helping understand it better? And so I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. Now this is, um, this is a letter written to a church in western Turkey. So long time back, about 60 AD. And Paul writes this letter. He's one of the early Christian leaders to a church in western Turkey. And in doing so, he provides in these 10 verses maybe one of the clearest summaries of the Christian message in the whole Bible. So if you're new, if you're a visitor, if you have not yet started following Jesus, you're looking into Christianity, this is a brilliant 10 verses to read. This will really set up for you what Christians believe in a way that will probably be clearer than you've heard in lots of other parts of the Bible you've heard read. I don't know if this has ever been your experience when you arrive, um, but if you walk into a church for the first time and the message is being read from a passage um, and it says, and then the Hittites and the Hivites entered the land of the Girgashites and the Jebusites, and then they exchange sandals with one another. And so they walk, and you're, you're kind of sitting there thinking, I don't understand what's going on. This is the opposite of that. This is a passage that, actually, although we have to understand the language, really clearly lays out for someone. If you've never been uh, to a church before, this is one of your first few times. This will help you, I hope, because it's actually quite a, a clear explanation of what Christians believe the message of Jesus is all about. And it starts like this. And you, all of you, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. You were all dead, you all once lived like this, following the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, all of us, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a very scary, heavy bit of passage. You were dead, and this is what Christians believe about people before you become a believer in Jesus. Before you get, as we'll see, made alive by God, all of us are dead. All of us are spiritually unresponsive to God. 
We have no way within our hearts of responding to God at all. We are absolutely without life to respond to God. God could be shouting our name and we've got nothing to give back to him. We've got no response. It's like walking through a graveyard shouting, get up, get up. And there's no response from the corpses. And we are spiritually dead in our, trans- in our trespasses and sins because we've rebelled against God. We're dead. That's where we are. And like the rest of mankind, we're objects of wrath. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's the same phrase. I want to remind you, you're a corpse. You're like this. Stiff as a board, six feet under. You've got absolutely no way of responding to God. And God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You've got nothing to respond to God. We were spiritually dead. But God, even when we were made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace to in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, that's free gift, by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I'm going to focus on verses 4 to 10 and just help us see what it is. The, the description of death at the beginning is kind of severe and we have to understand it and it's good, worth going into in some depth, but I want to do the good news part this morning. In fact, Two weeks ago, I preached on the bad news part in Eastbourne. Everyone leaves very miserable. You just do that. You're all dead. You're all objects of wrath. We're all awful. We're all following the world, the flesh, the devil. We're all going to die. We're all going to... And people sort of leave halfway thinking, is there any good news at the end of this message? And so this, what I'm doing today is actually the second half of that, the good news, the, the but God bit. The bit that when we're left thinking, but if I'm unresponsive to God and I'm following the world I'm following the flesh I'm following the devil I'm, I'm basically living as a rebel against God even if I'm a nice person I am living in defiance of God I want to be my own God I don't want to follow him if I'm in that situation and if the, this big cloud of the wrath of God is over my head what on earth am I going to do about it? what happens next? and what's powerful about the way Paul reasons and the Christian message is that in verse 4 it says but God and in those two words I think the difference between Christianity and all other systems of thought is made clear but God you see every other system of thought goes like this and you were in a terrible mess and maybe the world was a bit of a pig's ear and the, the ice caps were melting and it was beginning to flood in parts of the world and there wasn't enough food to go around because even though there was, lots of the rich people took it and so people were starving and uh, there wasn't enough, maybe people were dying and there was all kinds of problems in the world. Here's the world is a basket case. But you, that's the way every other system of thought works, whether you're secular or religious actually, this is the world, it's a mess, and you're a mess and there's problems in the world. Maybe you're lacking in self-esteem, maybe there's, you didn't know that your, you know, your father loved you or whatever, but there's problems in your life, there's deep issues in your life, but you, human beings, you found a way of resolving the problem and getting yourself back on track. That's the way every other system of thought works. You were, here was the problem, but you, or but people. And the Christian message doesn't say that. The Christian message says, not but you, but God. 
Because actually you'd attempted to solve it and it didn't work because you tried. And that's the difference between Christianity and every other system of thought that you'd come across. You see, if, if you're a religious person, it's quite obvious to see that because other religious systems are generally based on us being able to do things that get ourselves right with the God or gods that we believe are up there. So if you're a Muslim, then you have to outweigh the bad deeds in your life with good deeds. And if you have done that, you will inherit paradise at the end. So you're, the number of good things you do, imagine someone, someone's keeping a chart. And it's like the five-bar gate system over here for good, another one over here for bad. And so every time you get a good one, it's marked up, and a bad one, that's marked up. And at the end, the scores are added up, metaphorically, and you, if you've got more good than bad, then you're in paradise, and if not, then sorry. But you, you see? But you, you know, you had all these problems, but you managed to resolve your situation and impress Allah in a certain way, and as a result, you've been able to earn paradise. And that would be the same with, actually, with the Eastern religions as well, where there's a concept of karma and retribution for what you do. So you do good things and good things happen back. You do bad things, bad things happen back. Buddhism, Hinduism, that that system of thought, even in endless cycles of reincarnation, where your reincarnation state is according to how well you did, but they're all based on you doing something to resolve the problems that there are in your own life and in the world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You followed the world, the flesh and the devil, but you... And the Christian message doesn't say that. The odd thing is, though, it's not just religious views that take that approach. It's actually secular views as well. So the gospel, according to somebody who doesn't believe in God, and we all have one, so if you're, not a, if you're somebody, you, you're maybe an atheist here this morning, or a sceptical agnostic, and you're thinking, I'm not a religious person, so what you've just said doesn't apply to me. And I say, well, no. Maybe it's not a religious but you. Maybe it's just a humanist but you. Maybe the gospel for you goes something like this. The world has been a very difficult, very dark, very dangerous place. But over time, human beings have developed and increased in intelligence and education and learning and knowledge. And over that period of time, we've improved our capacity to extend people's lifespans and to raise wealth and to mine the goodness of the earth and turn it into things which are productive so people now have a higher standard of living than they did and they live longer than they did and what will happen is by the end we will have worked out so much how to solve the world's problems that we'll be able to do operations on people whereby we remove things that cause them pain and problems we may even be able to stop people dying altogether so we live forever we may be able to remove the sin gene from human beings so no one ever wants to do anything bad and no one ever feels miserable or alone or sad no one will ever want to commit suicide in this new world that we will create and if we could just educate those stupid people out there who don't understand, we'd be able to solve all the world's problems. You ever met anybody who kind of thinks like that? But you. That's the gospel, isn't it? The world was a problem, but you, you, human beings, well done, well done, round of applause from the cosmos. You have solved our problems. You have taken away that which was holding us back. Well done. The problem is it doesn't seem to be going that well. Because we are making people's lives longer, but we're also killing more people. And we are seeming to make people's standard of living go up, but also more people commit suicide now than they ever did before. And in fact, almost the richer the country, the more likely they are to do that. And we seem to have, there seems to be something rotten in the human heart that doesn't just get solved by advances in education and medicine. So people who go to school and university don't necessarily have happier lives than people who don't. And you've got to look at the world as a whole and just question whether or not the but you gospel has any merit to it. But Paul doesn't start there. He says, this isn't right. The gospel is not, yes, here was the problem, but you. The gospel is, here was the problem, but God did something and that solved a problem that you could never solve yourself. So I was, two Sundays ago, as I said, I preached on verses 1 to 3 of this chapter and I 
used as the title, How Can a Loving God Send People to Hell? And I talked about hell and what, how it's legitimate and how is it just or loving of God to do that. And at the end of it, a guy came up to me, I offered a response to, to the gospel at the end, and a guy who's currently on Alpha came at the end and he said, yeah, it was really good and thank you for, for saying all that. But as we talked, we spent 20 minutes talking, and as we went through the conversation, he said two things that really struck me. He said, first of all, do you know, one of my big questions though is still, what's the difference between Christianity and other religions? I'm still not sure on that. You know, it's, they, they all seem to be kind of same ideas. You know, there is God and there's worship in all of them and I just don't praying in all of them. I don't understand the difference. And another thing he said that struck me is, um, I know that I need to stop getting angry with people in the car. That was, that was the thing in his life. He realised that was a, an area of what we would call sin in his life. He said, this, this is the thing where I need to work on that. And as he said those two comments, I thought, you know, they answer each other, those two remarks he's made. Because the difference between Christianity and all other religions is that in all other religions you have to try and stop being angry with people in the car. And in Christianity you acknowledge that you cannot, no matter how hard you try, deal with your own sin problem yourself and God has to do something for you. And that was the difference. So his question, what's the difference between Christianity and everything else, was answered by his other example, which is about being angry in the car. I said, if you're a Muslim, or if you're a humanist, if you're a secular person, you have to try and solve your own problems. In the Gospel, we begin, but God! And God comes down and does something and resolves the problem for you that way. And it's not something you can fix yourself. And that, as I spoke to him, and it occurred to me, the connection between the two, I realised in any other system the answer is but you, but in the Gospel it's but God. The last words of the Buddha, this one really blew my mind, so I didn't believe it when I heard it. So I had to go and check it online and read all sorts of obscure Buddhist websites to make sure that I got it right. The last words of the Buddha, in a very common translation of what he said, were this, according to the Mahapurini Buna Sutta. You impressed? Any, any Buddhists? Any, any, any former Buddhists? Did I pronounce it right? Somebody tell me I did. There's a man at the back claiming to be a former Buddhist, but I think he's joking. It's all right. <laughs> the last words of the Buddha were this, all component things in the world are changeable, they are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. That's the last words of the Buddha. Then it says, the, the words of the Buddha are thus ended. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Broadly speaking, that doesn't just represent Buddhism, it represents Islam, it represents a lot of forms of modern Judaism, and it represents humanism as well. Work hard to gain your own salvation. That's the message at school. Work hard. You'll gain your own salvation. You will be able to rescue yourself and others around you if you work hard. You know, the last words of the Buddha. Work hard, gain your own salvation. Last words of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is finished. See the mind-blowing contrast between these two pronouncements at the end of their lives of these two formative thinkers for the world and basically humanity is divided into those who would go with the Buddha and those who would go with Jesus Christ. Do we stand and look at the answer to humanity's problems as work hard to gain your salvation, or it is finished. Do you stand there and look at it as but you, or as but God? And Paul says, but God, but God. But God what and why? Well, we move on to in verse 4. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us. So you might want to ask the question, why? So, all right, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm six feet under with no capacity to respond to God. But God does something. Why would he do that? Why would me, a rebel against God, be of any interest to him whatsoever so he'd want to come and save me? Why would he do that? And the answer is because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 4, 
and in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Because of the love with which he loved us and because he wanted to show us his grace in Christ. And you might have noticed, the sharp-eyed among you will have noticed, this is a completely circular argument. It's awful, terrible logic. God showed his grace to us. Why? Because of the love with which he loved us. Okay, well, why did he show his love to us? Because of the grace he wanted to show us. But why did he show grace to us? Because he loved us. Why did he show love to us? Because he was gracious to us. And it just goes round and round and round. And you think, this doesn't have an end. This is a, a weird circular argument. And I sit there and say, yes, it is. It's the best circular argument in the world. Because it means I'm trying to break my way into the circle and say, Andrew has done this. And Andrew is maybe um, because of the great love with which God loved us and the excellent efforts of Andrew, and I'm peeking into this sort of circular argument, going, hello, I'm here, this is what I've done. And Paul just says, do you know, it's got nothing to do with Andrew at all. It's got nothing to do with anybody in King's Church Hastings at all. Because of the great love with which God loved us, because of the grace he wanted to show us. Why is he gracious? Because of his love. Why is he loving? Because of his grace. And he just goes round and round and round. And you and me are trying to break in, and God says, no, 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 it's not about you, it's about me. That's the basis, the foundation for what God has done in your life. It doesn't get based on you. And you and I want it to be because we want to find our justification for being here. We kind of think, well, I, did, I was good and I did used to pray and I was a, a noble person, a moral person or whatever it might be. And as we try and peer into the circle, God says, no, this circular argument goes on forever and it has no re- reference whatsoever to the good things you did because of the great love with which he loved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Well now, so that's but God, because of the great love with which he loved us. What did you? What did he do? But God what? Where's the main verb? And this is the heart of the passage in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Here's what God does. He makes us alive. Or in different Christian language, same idea, just different phrase for it, he causes us to be born again. He makes us alive. He takes a corpse and he makes it alive. He breathes life into it, raises it up and causes it to have a life it didn't have of its own. No amount of tinkering or cleaning or trying harder will make a dead person live. It just doesn't work that way. So you and I, when, when we die, and we all will, we will be unable to be gotten through to by people shouting or people singing to us or people saying, have you, if you were to do this, if you go to a, a graveyard near here and begin to start trying to speak to the graveyard and say, would you get out of these graves because there's some really good news. In fact, Mr. So-and-so who died in 1886, you know, kind of Wilfred Hopgood something, you, listen, the, the thing of which you died, we've now found a medicine for it. We could heal you. Would you get up out of the grave? The news is so good, surely it will bring life to you on its own. If news is good enough, surely people will want to respond. And the answer is no. Because if you're dead, it doesn't matter how good the news is, you still can't respond because you don't have the capacity to. This is what Paul says we were. Paul says there was this amazing trumpet call of news of the wonder of the gospel in Jesus. And none of us were able to respond to it because we were dead. And What we need is not a clean, a polish, a pep talk, an encouragement, a come on, get up and I'll carry you around. None of those things would have worked. What we needed was to be made alive and we didn't have that. We didn't have new life from God. And I want to illustrate this point with reference to one of these things which I got laughed at in Eastbourne last week for, but 
I call these, these things, in my generation, these things are called grow bags. How many people of my kind of age have kids that put them in these things? Okay, these are called grow bags, right? People who are significantly older than me do not think they're called grow bags. In fact, they think a grow bag is something you put tomatoes in or something. And they, for them, the idea of calling this a grow bag is very amusing because it makes them think that a child is being treated like a plant and there are some similarities but not many. And so they would call this a sleeping bag. If you want to call it a sleeping bag, that's fine. What would you, what would you call it? Ron Simpkins, what would you call this? He, has no, he looks at me as if I've got three heads. He's like, I've never even seen something like that, I imagine. Now, so this is a grow bag. Now, the other day, I'm sorry, by the way, if you are sensitive to stories relating to disgusting things that children do, no one will think any less of you if you leave the room at this particular juncture for about five minutes, okay? Because this is going to be a major illustration. Um, you prude <laughs> for walking out. But, okay, so my children um, fill their nappies overnight, typically, um, but on one occasion, two weeks ago, so two weeks ago Tuesday, uh, my son filled his nappy with unusual levels of skill and, and depth, <laughs> and the nappy, as a result, slid uh, from his waist down to his feet. And it's the, f- it's the first time this, of something of this magnitude has happened. Uh, he's two and a half, um, and it slid down to his feet, and obviously, so his entire legs, thighs, down to the feet are covered in feces, as indeed is the interior of this bag. Um, so it wasn't this bag. The other, I'll explain why in a moment. Um, so this bag is absolutely covered, and it is just, just an unremovable brown stain. You could, if, if you had wanted, have put your hand into here and just fished out huge clods of it. It was unspeakable. I said you might want to leave. It was absolutely vile. It was so unfathomably disgusting. And we came in in the morning and thought, that grow bag is beyond repair. It's beyond cleaning. It is so filthy and soiled that no amount of... You know, have you ever done the thing where you scrub something to make it clean, but you realise, I think I'm just scrubbing it further into the fabric? Has that happened? Your carpet stains are like that, red wine. I'm scrubbing it. And as you think, the red wine's just being pushed further into the carpet. That was what I thought would happen. If we had taken this, which is meant to be white, and started scrubbing it, it would have just made it further and further in, and we would have had no hope of ever cleaning this thing. It was beyond cleaning. It was so disgusting that we thought no amount of scrubbing or effort will ever make this clean. So what do we do? Look at my son sitting on the floor, surrounded by this thing. First of all, you put him in the bath. Um, and you have to clean him, and then you just look at this, and Rachel and I looked at one another and just thought, this, you know, is never, ever going to be clean. No scrubbing will rescue it. So I think we need to put it in a bag, tie the lid on it, and put it in the outside bin, because we've learned that lesson the hard way. As many of you may know, uh, if you put things like that in the inside bin in the middle of summer, it's not long before you realise that you made a dreadful mistake and the kitchen does not smell like you would like it to. So we put it in the outside bin, put the lid on, try and forget about it, dustman take it away, burn it, this grow bag is so soiled, it's beyond repair, and we have to buy him a new one. So we then go on Friday out or whatever, or eBay or something, and just pick up another two grow bags and give them to Zeke, and he then goes to sleep that night in a completely fresh one, which I think, actually this one's probably his sister's, but you get the idea, then a completely brand new grow bag that was utterly white and clean, and as you put your face in it, it was like the Lenore advert. You know those ones where everybody's like, oh, my family will be so happy if my laundry smells like that. It was amazing. He goes to sleep free from all of the filth that he had created the previous day. He doesn't even know it's there. He's forgotten about it now. It's stuck in a bin on its way to some landfill site somewhere because it was so soiled it had to be destroyed and instead he's got this brand new one able to live free from all the consequences of the filth of his life from the previous day. So it happens in the Gospel. If it happens to you and me, God comes and looks at our lives 
And he says, do you know what? That is so soiled, so spoiled by rebellion against God and persistent denial of God's existence and so disgusting in so many ways. There's so many things you've done that have blackened your character in the sight of God. Some of them deliberately, some of them accidentally, some of them in defiance with your fist raised saying, God, if you ever try, I refuse to submit to you, I'm going to be my own God. And some of them were really quite accidental things, but you just did and you didn't even realise you'd done it. But as God looks at your life and said, this, I'm afraid this life, Andrew's life, is soiled beyond repair. I could literally pick out just huge clods of filthy sin and chuck them on the floor. And as I look at it, I, I think, do you know what? No amount of scrubbing is going to make Andrew better. I could take Andrew's life, or Andrew could take his life, and scrub and try and ease off. He could try and stop being angry with people in the car. He could try and stop looking at other women like that. He could try and stop using his mouth and his language like that. He could try and stop all kinds of things. But as he scrubs, he realises harder and harder, he's just pushing the sin further and further into the fabric of his life. He can't save himself. So what I'm going to do this is God, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the old life, I'm going to stick it in a bag, I'm going to tie it up, seal it, I'm going to stick it in the outside bin and it's going to get sent to a landfill site somewhere where it's going to be burned and I never want to see it again and I'm going to give him a brand new one that is so clean that he will be able to go to sleep in it at night saying this is the freshest, cleanest life I could ever have had and I'm almost unaware of the filth that I created the previous day. That's what God does. God made us alive together with Christ. He doesn't try and scrub and fiddle around with the old you. He says the old you needs to die. That's why we baptised people. I know last week you did that. And we baptised people to bury the old one and say, do you know, this is the old grow bag going down forever. I never want to see it again. And up comes the new one where a brand new life has been created by Almighty God because you couldn't save yourself, so he had to. But God made us alive together with Christ. And it's vital that we know that because being born again, being made alive, is absolutely critical to the Christian life. It's, it's not, we're not a, a, a people who will try and improve and scrub and tweak and fiddle with. If you haven't been born again, you are still destined for the condemnation of God. If you haven't been born again, you are still destined for hell. This is the point that Paul had made in verses 1 to 3. This is the state of people without God. Dead, objects of wrath, following the world, following the flesh, following the devil, children of wrath, no hope. But God made us alive. But if that hasn't happened, if the but God made us alive isn't true of your life, then even if you come to church, and even if you are part of a life group, and even if you have become a member of the church, if you have not been born again, you're still destined for hell. That's a scary idea, but Paul is clear about it. And I I get scared because when I look at my church and I look across the room, I think, do you know, the chances are that a few of these people are churchgoers who are still dead. And I don't, you know, sometimes I look at things happening in people's lives and I think, do you know, I'm not sure that's how somebody who has been made alive by the Spirit of God would respond in that situation. I don't know whether you have been made alive or not. But I do know that the process of coming and sitting here doesn't save you. Now, the process of coming and sitting here is great. I love coming here. I love worshipping together and I love preaching and I love hearing the word of God spoken because it helps me awaken things, God awakens things in my heart that allow me to respond to his gospel. But if I don't, then hearing it doesn't do me any good at all. And I would want to put it to you that you must be born again. And if you are somebody here who, if you like, has, has done good things and been to church and been in a life group even, but has not been made alive, that your desires haven't changed, 
your, your passion for God isn't real and you know it isn't, you need to be born again. You need to call out to God and say, would you please save me now? Because no amount of church going will rescue me. For Paul, the issue is not, for, but when we were in, you know, in a terrible mess and so on, we went to church and helped ourselves. The issue is God made us alive. And if he hadn't done that, we'd have no hope at all. Now there's a very helpful um, little bit of writing that addressed this issue in a fantastic book on the new birth called Finally Alive by John Piper, which is a brilliant study by a brilliant writer of the theme of being born again. And he, takes, um, he came across a report that really got up his nose in, um, in America. The report was done by the Barnard Group, who are a group of Christian researchers in America. And the, the report was called Born Again Christians Just as Likely to Divorce as Non-Christians. That was the title of the report. He said that this, what this report did was it used the words evangelicals interchangeably with born again and reported that only 9% of people who would, they were identifying as born again, only 9% of them tithed. So only 9% of them gave 10% or more of their income. Of 12,000 teenagers who they reckoned were born again who took the pledge to wait for marriage before having sex, 80% of them had had sex outside marriage in the next seven years. 26% of traditional evangelicals don't think premarital sex is even wrong. White evangelicals, it said, are more likely than Catholics and mainline Protestants to object to having black neighbours. So what the report said is, if you, it doesn't matter, if you've been born again, it doesn't really make any difference to your life. In fact, it means you're just as likely to be sexually promiscuous, just as likely to break your marriage vows, just as stingy and more racist than if you hadn't been born again. That's the claim of this report on the basis of studying American Christians. Now, that was an interesting report in itself. What's, what really got me was John Piper's response. He said, I want to say loud and clear that when the Barnard Group uses the term born again to describe American churchgoers whose lives are indistinguishable from the world and who sin as much as the world and sacrifice for others as little as the world and embrace injustice as readily as the world and covet things as greedily as the world and enjoy God-ignoring entertainment as enthusiastically as the world, when the term born again is used to describe these professing Christians, the Barnard group is making a profound mistake. It is using the biblical term born again in a way that would make it unrecognisable by Jesus and the biblical writers. What he's saying is, in the Bible, nobody would ever use the word born again to describe somebody whose life was just as worldly as everybody else's and in fact in some places was worse. He said, I'm not saying the research is wrong. It appears to be appallingly right. I'm not saying the church is not as worldly as they think it is. I am saying that the writers of the New Testament think in exactly the opposite direction about being born again. Instead of moving from a profession of faith, I, I am a Christian, to the label born again, to the worldliness of these so-called born-again people, to the conclusion that the new birth doesn't radically change people, the New Testament moves in the opposite direction. The New Testament moves from the absolute certainty that the new birth radically changes people to the observation that many professing Christians are indeed not radically changed to the conclusion that many professing Christians are not born again. The New Testament, unlike the Barnard group, does not defile the new birth with the worldliness of unborn-again professing Christians. I found that immensely helpful and challenging. He said, if you ask, if I did a poll in this room, how many people here are Christians? And everybody puts their hands up, or most of you do. And then if I just assume on the basis of the fact that you think you're a Christian that God has made you alive and changed you completely forever. Well, this is what the Barnard Group do. So they say, you, you say you're a Christian, well, that means you're born again then. Oh, your life is completely worldly. You don't experience victory over sin at all. You're a racist, stingy, sexually promiscuous so-and-so. 
Therefore, oh, being born again mustn't change anything then. And John Piper's like, ah! In better language. That's not true. He's saying being born again definitely, surely, absolutely radically changes people. Doesn't mean they don't sin. Doesn't mean I don't sin. Doesn't mean you don't sin. But it radically changes people. Therefore, if I observe somebody whose life looks just like the world in all of these ways, I can conclude that no matter what they say they believe, their life has not been made alive by God. And therefore they haven't been born again. They have to be careful because, of course, many of us instantly hearing that think, well, I sin. I don't experience permanent victory over sin. I, I don't walk around on cloud nine all the time, never thinking evil thoughts, never saying anything that's upsetting to anybody, never doing anything evil. Of course I do. I do. You do. But you know, there's a world of difference between somebody who sins and, and doesn't really mind that it's offended God and somebody who sins and says, God, I have fallen short of you here. I, I, I'm sorry. I ask, would you help me? I need your spirit to grow me so that I'm able to walk free of this kind of thing. There's a world of difference between those two people. The way a non-born-again person responds is, I've sinned and I don't really mind. The way a born-again person says is, I'm gutted that I have fallen short of your standards on this one, God, and I'm asking you to help me. I love you. Thank you for grace. Thank you that you washed me clean of my sin. Thank you you gave me a new life. Now help me just live in the good of it now. The difference between those two is massive. And you need to be born again to be able to see the kingdom of God, Jesus says. So we're not looking at, you know, what happens when you've been made alive by God is your desires radically change. And you begin to conquer sin rather than losing it all the time. And what happens is your deepest desire becomes for the things of God, even when you miss it, even when you fail. You wake up in the morning and you you don't even tune in to the fact that you're a Christian for the first two hours. And then when you do, you think, actually, this is the biggest, best thing in the world and I want to live for God and I'm sorry that I've flunked it today. Do you have those prayers? I pray that kind of prayer pretty much every day because I flunk it every day. And when I do, the very fact that I want to be different and the very fact that I acknowledge that God has made me different is proof that I have been born again. But the fact that I come to church doesn't. So if you fit the profile of these people we've just been talking about, you say, I come to church, I say I'm a Christian, but my life in these immeasurable ways is no different from anybody else in the world, the chances are you have not been born again and you need to be. You need to get right with God because this is a miracle of God. It's about God. Gospel, not about you. So it doesn't work doing your best or going along to church. And all of this happens by grace. Paul is so desperate for us to get this that he hammers it again in verses 8 to 9. So he says it in verse 5, by grace you've been saved, and then he comes back in verses 8 to 9, for it is by grace you've been saved. And you say, Paul, I know, you just told me that. And he said, you haven't got it yet. It is by grace that you have been saved. And then he goes on, and this is not your own doing. This is a gift of God. Can you hear me at the back? It's that really labouring the point. Not a result of works. And people are saying, okay, we've got it. He goes, so that no one may boast. He's really trying to drive home the point that it's not a result of what you did. So I really hope that nobody takes what I've just said about being born again and this research to go away thinking, oh, if my life isn't flawless, then I'm somehow not a Christian because that's not the point. The point isn't that you work your way into anything. We will see how the relationship between faith and works corresponds at the end. But for now, please don't anybody miss Paul's central hammering point. It's a but God, not a but you. It's not a result of works. It's by grace so that nobody may boast. So now we've looked at verses 4 and 5 and verses 8 and 9. And that means we now need to go on and look at verse 6 just to make sure we've finished the flow of thought and then finally verse 10.
Normally people read these in order, um, so I'm sorry about not doing that. But if this isn't enough, just finally, look, look at what Paul says in verse 6. It says, Paul, uh, God ra- made us alive and raised us with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So our rescue doesn't stop at being born again. It continues through to being seated in heavenly places, but I've found that that verse bothers people because they don't really understand what being seated anywhere means. So for me, being seated is, is this, right? So I, I've been seated in heavenly places, Paul says, but in practice, I'm sitting on the stage. And you're sitting on your green chair and you're thinking, I, I know it's the kind of thing Christians say, you know, we've been seated in heavenly places, hallelujah. But I don't really know what it means because for me, I'm still sitting here. Have you ever wondered that? Is anybody now wondering about it, having never wondered before? What does it mean? Christ- but we do do that. Christians do that. We use phrases and, you know, oh, yes, covered in the blood. Like, what does that mean? And you ask them and they're not really sure. So it's ju- it could just be a bit of Christian jargon. Seated in heavenly places. What does it mean? I went to um, Nigeria about five years ago and because a friend of mine is a pilot for British Airways, we unknown to us got upgraded to business class. Now, how many people here have had that wonderful joy of paying for cattle class and getting business class? There's nothing like it, is there? I mean, the sense of, I got what I don't deserve, that overwhelms you as you sit there. And I was travelling with a member of the House of Lords, a lady called Baroness Cox, who I think some of you may have come across before, and we were on a human rights visit in Nigeria, and we were in Abuja airport, and somebody comes up and says, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson, you need to go over here. And we're like, oh, right, something wrong with our papers. And we get to the desk and they say, because of your friend who's a pilot, you have been seated in business class. 